Hi, and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns, and I identify as a fat, disabled, cis man of color. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Preston. Jeff, who uses he, him pronouns, is an assistant professor in the Disability Studies program at King's University College at Western University in London, Ontario. Jeff most recently provided testimony on Canada's response to COVID as it relates to disability to the House of Commons Standing Committee on Human Resources, Skills and Social Development and the Status of Persons with Disabilities. His opening remarks have been shared widely online and reflect in many ways what differently embodied and in-minded people are feeling and experiencing during this health crisis. I'm excited to speak with him about his work. What I'm working on right now is trying to dig out a sense of analysis, a way of doing work around internet memes and disability. His life outside of academia. I love video games. Um, I'm really deep into video games. Love it. But there's just something beautiful about loading up NHL and just knowing that you just eviscerated like a 12 year old. Um, Like there's just no better feeling. And there's no better reality check than when the 12 year old completely humiliates you. And of course, to ask him how he thinks disability can save the world. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm so glad that we get this opportunity to chat. Um, I wanted to jump right into uh, what I call segment one. Um, This is inside the research, the project, the work, the art. I wanted to ask you, um, as a first question, why disability studies? That's a a really good question, and like an enormous question uh, in some ways. Uh, And so I think what's probably going to happen a lot during this episode, uh, this is a a spoiler alert to to the listeners, Um, I, I tell stories, it's just sort of what I do. Uh, and so I'm going to answer your question with a story. Um, and my story uh, goes back a little bit, um, back to when I was young. Um, so when I was a child, I was scooped up very, very young into the world of charity, um, into the world of sort of poster boy dumb Um so I, you know, I was three years old. I gave like a little thank you speech at a beach volleyball tournament that was raising money for muscular dystrophy. Uh, and it kind of splayed off from there into becoming, um, you know, doing poster child for muscular dystrophy association for a couple of years and getting involved with these seals. And really through all of my childhood and through uh, my high school years, um, I had these two competing narratives about who I was and what my life was. 
um, that in my sort of daily interactions uh, in the world of charity, um, there were these narratives of um, tragedy, these narratives of um, struggle, uh, these narratives of loss. Um, there was a lot of sort of, there's some biblical stuff going on there uh, as well, narratives of God and love. Um, and uh, then on the other side, I had my own personal experience, um, which really contradicted a lot of those experiences, a lot of the things that people said to me. I remember when I was young, being, I was always very awkward when people would say things like, you know, I'm really sorry this happened to you. Um, and I never really knew how to answer that because it didn't reflect how I felt. I wasn't sorry that this had quote unquote happened to me. I didn't feel like anything had happened to me because I was born this way. Um, my form of muscular dystrophy is genetic uh, from birth. And so, uh, so I always felt kind of awkward. And I realized at a really young age that my responses were really about other people, not about me. Um, that I was like, right, in this moment of interaction, this actually isn't really about me. And that's okay. Like Maybe this is why I'm here on this planet. Maybe I uh, can give comfort and aid uh, to these poor people who are really distressed by me uh, for some reason. Um, and so it, it wasn't until I got to university um, when I was a little bit of a punk, a little counterculture, loved reading my Adbusters magazine, uh, that I first picked up this book uh, called The Politics of Disablement um, by Mike Oliver. And I read this thing and it was like a bomb went off in my head. Um, and I realized that these two sort of disjointed, disconnected worlds were suddenly being drawn together and pulled together by, uh, well, by and large, by a historical materialist perspective of disability, but more broadly speaking, uh, the social model. Uh, I suddenly realized there were people out there that were actually putting words to some of the things that I had been feeling um, in, a, in a way that I had no language to speak, um, that I had no way of actually putting words to. And uh, so that's sort of what drew me into the field. Uh, it was like this sort of almost like a forbidden text, right? Like it was like that moment when you know, Eve bites into the apple, uh, and the forbidden fruit was the S. Uh, and I was so ready to be booted out of the garden uh, in some ways, and uh, really never looked back from then. Can I ask, how did you find a copy of uh, my Oliver's? Like, how was it was sitting on a shelf? It was sitting on a shelf in the library at Western. Mm. Um, I was working on a paper. Uh, my, my program um, had a lot of, we'll say, Marxist-adjacent uh, professors, um, professors that were interested in Marxist criticism and that sort of thing. Uh, so I was working on a paper about uh, historical materialism, and uh, it came up on the search. Um, and uh, I was like, politics of disability, politics of disablement, that's really interesting. Uh, pulled it. It was small. I read it in like a day. Um, I do not remember how I did on that assignment um, because that's not at all what the assignment was about. Um, but uh, who cares? Who cares how that went? It doesn't matter. It set me. It set me on my path. I think for for not just the the, the master's work and the doctoral work, but but really a career in in trying to do my part. Um, 
to give back some of my own words uh, in thanks for the words that I got from uh, people like Mike, people like Colin Barnes, people like Tom Schaefer, people like Rosemary uh, Garland Thompson, uh, Robert McGrewer, um, uh, Jasbir Poir, like the, the list just uh, goes on and on and on. And so I, I felt like the more I read, the more I realized this is something that I really want to be a part of. And um, I want to get back. I want to get back to the people who made such a difference in my life. That's wonderful. I, I want to know, is there a particular kind of topic or project or subject that you want to uh, speak about today? I, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, you recently um, were asked to give testimony to Canada's response to COVID in relation to disability. I wonder, um, you know, I have lots of questions about that. So I wonder if you want to talk about that or is there something else that you'd like to talk about first? Yeah, so before we talk about that, because um, there's some there's some grimness uh, to those conversations, uh, your viewers won't be able to see because this is uh, a podcast. Um, hello to everyone from the uh, 21st century uh, with video. Um, thank you for listening uh, on your on your. I'm assuming old timey radio uh, at home. Okay. Uh, so I I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm kind of mocking myself here, but for those of you who cannot see. Um, you should be aware that I'm currently wearing a sweatshirt, which is uh, basically a young boy uh, riding, surfing on a keyboard. Um, I'll let Fatty see so you can enjoy. Uh, with the words internet written above it. Um, this is a sweater that was made uh, out of a cover of an old textbook. Uh, it was made in Canada um, in the 90s to teach children about surfing quote unquote, on the World Wide Web. Um, and I wore that very intentionally because um, what I'm sort of, what I'm working on right now is trying to dig out a sense of analysis, a way of doing work around internet memes and disability. Uh, and that's really the direction that my research is taking at the moment, uh, digital culture and the ways in which we represent disability, the ways that we present uh, create, construct, imagine disability in digital spaces. Um, and so there's sort of two branches that I'm, that I'm following. One branch is, is about doing really archaeology of mimetic culture uh, and looking at the ways in which tendrils of ableism bind together these, what may seem to be these superfluous, um, just sort of nonsense, uh, fun little memes that we share on the internet. Uh, that actually give us really interesting access to the zeitgeist on uh, who and what disabled people are and what is and isn't relevant, important, necessary, and real about disability and how we could sort of dig out some of those things through internet memes. Uh, and then the other side is I'm, I'm, I, I really like to um, play with internet scammers um, and a lot of internet scammers I'm not like the perfect intersection for internet scammers uh, because I am a person with a disability. It's very obvious that I have a disability on my social media presence uh, and scammers target a lot of disabled people um, mm. presumed to be easy targets. Yeah, it's a, a real problem. Um, and I'm also an academic with a publicly posted email address uh, on our faculty website, meaning that I get a ton of emails of people pretending to be colleagues of mine trying to get me to buy uh, gift cards 
uh, and other various things. So I, I love to play with spammers. Um, I like to talk to them, befriend them, learn things about them, um, make them very angry and frustrated. Um, and what turned what was a hobby to start, I guess, um, has started to grow into a bit of a research interest. Um, I'm starting to untangle uh, a little bit of a web uh, that I believe is, um, this is still very early days, I should say, but um, finding what appears to be some sort of bot network uh, that has been created on Facebook um, using uh, images of disabled people um, and it appears to be very actively targeting, adding as friends, uh, disabled people um, throughout. Uh, and so uh, the other side of the sort of digital culture question uh, is the ways in which the internet is also opening up threat to disabled people and mm -hmm. what types of obligations uh, do services like Twitter, like uh, Facebook, like Instagram, what type of obligations do they have not just to protect disabled people, quote unquote, um, but what types of obligations do they have to react very quickly um, and to prevent the opportunity for people to take advantage of uh, those who are um, either unaware, unable, uh, or simply don't have the, the technical sophistication to untangle some of these scams. Um, and so starting to think about the sort of the perils and the positives of digital connection um, is I think kind of lies at the heart of my, my more recent uh, thrust. But I think what, what binds all of it together is I just, I'm fascinated by the normate. Um, they are the strangest, most interesting uh, creature I think on this planet. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe one day I would love to start maybe if they you know, form like, uh, like an institute um, that we could bring the normates to and give them care, uh, perhaps help them to get through uh, the, the struggles of normalcy. Um, I think that'd be like the long-term vision, but we're going to sort out this whole internet memes thing first, uh, and then we'll, we'll fix the normates after. I, I mean, I've always thought the normates were an illusion and that none, none of them actually existed, but, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I, they, they do in their minds. They do in their minds. Yeah. No. They're there. They're out there. They, uh, they, they're, they're unorganized. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but they're out there. And, uh, you know, in, in the honor of medical science, I think, as academics, it's uh, we are beholden to fix them, um, to just get in there and uh, resolve their their deficiencies. Um, so he says, with with drip. For those of you who do not know, uh, this is intended to be dripping, with uh, just dripping with irony, um, yes. tongue firmly in cheek. Unless you are a wealthy donor and you would like to finance uh, the normal institute, um, I'm not opposed to your money um by all means um <laughs> i will build a building for these people <laughs> on that note i wonder if you can tell us a little bit about um what principles or guidelines undergrade your work is there a particular kind of theoretical perspective especially when you're thinking about the intersections of disability and technology or disability and like um internet studies or you know digital studies um yeah how do you, yeah, do you bring those two things together? Yeah, um, I, I'm a bit of a weirdo, um, he says, 
you know, 15 minutes into this. Uh, good if you hadn't figured that out yet, uh, dear listener. Uh, but I, um, I, I love finding theories and I love finding tools uh, that are typically not necessarily brought together, that aren't necessarily used together. And I like to kind of smash them together and see what comes out. Um, because ultimately there is no theory, there is no method that is perfect. Um, there are only tools and, and ideas that can help us take, take that next step forward. Um, I think when it comes to internet memes, I've been really, really drawn back uh, to Baudrillard um, and his writings on Simulacra uh, in particular. Um, and I think the, the concept of Simulacra or hyperreality more generally, uh, obviously seems extraordinarily ahead of its time now in the world of the internet uh, where we live within a world of copies of copies of copies. Um, but I think that actually in the world of disability, this very concept is actually very useful in helping us to start to unpack uh, the layers of the representation. Because I think one thing I've learned in my time uh, in, in the world of media studies, uh, which is really my formal training, uh, is that every representation of disability is, is nestled within this broader cultural conversation around impairment that is largely representational in nature. Um, and so, uh, you know, for, for political, uh, political economic reasons, you have, uh, you know, movie studios, Rain Man does really well as a film, wins a bunch of awards, is well talked about. And then every other studio is like, we need to make our own Rain Man. So you get all these sort of copies, these spin-offs. And then, you know, you have, you know, many years later, you have something like I Am Sam, it hits again, and then you get another sort of rollout of these types of, of these types of films. Um, and so there's this sort of iterative nature to the ways in which we tell the story of disability in popular culture. Um, and understanding that, as Baudrillard says, that the, the objective, I think, is not to get to the truth of disability, but rather the objective is to untangle some of this web, to untangle the, the, the dense ball that is disability. Um, and I think that internet memes can help to get us in some ways to some of that content, help to see a little bit about not how a studio that is trying to present disability in a way in order to sell tickets, but how disability is used uh, in, in, in some ways to try and tell your own story, to give um, depth, context, or meaning or emotion to an individual's experience as they share a meme on their timeline, or uh, the ways that disability is used as, uh, as a cudgel in some ways, uh, the ways that disability is used to empower or disempower other people. So I think I, I'm really interested in a lot of the um, cognitive normative ideas that are wrapped up around Donald Trump, for instance, about the ways we talk about Donald Trump as degenerative cognitively. Uh, and we use cognitive impairment as a way to try and delegitimize Donald Trump as a president, um, which isn't me saying that Donald Trump is a legitimate president, uh, but I think that there are actually a lot of things that have nothing to do with uh, bodily or mental impairment that makes him completely unfit for the position and, and the job. Yeah, I mean, I, in, you know, I similarly think the same way around Trump, but I, I always wonder about how 
they speak about his fat body, right, as like a moral failing, um, a predictor of his activity, right? And yeah, and I I think you know you're unpacking of also how how cognitive ableism or ableism around like capacity, right, is also very much um, a part of that discussion. I mean, sounds. I mean, uh, it sounds fantastic. It sounds very layered. Um, I love when people talk about theories that I don't know and I'm introduced to it. So thank you for introducing me to a whole new area. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And doing it quite accessibly. So thank you for that. I've been trying. I've been trying to get my students to read uh, Baudrillard for several years now. Um, and uh, I'm shocked I'm still allowed to be a teacher uh, because they are like, why are you making me read this? I am 20 years old. What is wrong with you? <laughs> so I wonder if you could give us an example for those of us who don't know. Is there like a very popular meme? Um, that so, like, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, so for those of you who do know me, uh, this will come as no shock. But I, I have a low-key obsession with uh, a Torontonian um that i know as Aubrey graham um but many of you would know him by his other name uh which is drake uh aka the sex god um and so uh is I, that I, his name uh well see he refers to himself as the sixth god yes um Word. yes uh, among other things uh drizzy of course uh, is a big one ovo uh, october's very own um we could do and you know what have me back for another episode and we could do that's an entire good. Drake episode, um, because I have a lot to say. Um, <laughs> a lot to say. Um, but but I think Drake actually does give us a really great example. Um, there's a, a, an article I'm working on, literally right now as we speak, um, is about what was called the wheelchair Jimmy or wheelchair Drake meme. Uh, so this meme was an image. It was actually a promotional shot for the TV show Degrassi, The Next Generation. So when Drake says started from the bottom down here, that's what he was referring to. The bottom generation. Not actually. He means he's from the quote unquote streets. Yeah. Um, but uh, we all know Degrassi's where he started. Anyways, so he was on the show Degrassi, and um in the middle of Degrassi, uh they wanted a disabled character. Um my understanding is there was like an attempt to hire a disabled actor. Um the disabled actor didn't like the direction of the character um refused the role said i would rather do it this way um and many of those plot points were then just transported over to drake's character um and so drake's character jimmy brooks is shot in the spine um and uses a wheelchair for the rest of his time on the show um degrassi was trying to be very like current and modern and push the edges and talk about real people and that was sort of their idea um but uh, whether or not they succeeded is another conversation but but they had this promotional image of Aubrey Graham young Aubrey Graham he would have been about 17 16 17 at the time uh sitting in a manual wheelchair on a basketball court um that image uh burst onto the internet for some reason uh around 2011 2010 give or take uh and it really confused a lot of Americans who weren't aware of his time on Degrassi um, average episode of Degrassi in the U.S. was getting about a half a about a half a million viewers, um, give or take. So like, it was just under the million viewers sort of range. Uh, so not super popular in the U.S., right? So they were like, "Wait, why is Drake in a wheelchair?" Uh, 
So the image itself went viral. And then from there, it then was quickly jumped on as a what we call a stock character macro, um, which is an internet meme in which a stock image is used. And then you've got top text, bottom text um, that is usually done in sort of a specific kind of cadence. Um, and so for the wheelchair Jimmy meme, we end up with a couple of really interesting clusters. Uh, so the top text, bottom text typically are Drake lyrics that have been adapted to be about disability in some ways. Um, or Drake lyrics that have something to do with like being on a roll, um, that sort of time. So like there's one where he has a line uh, where he's talking about how successful he is. And he says, I'm floating in and out of consciousness. And they replace the word floating to rolling, uh, for instance. So, uh, so there's all these sort of memes that then were created playing with this idea of Drake in a wheelchair. Um, when we start to look then at the clusters of how this meme was used, we start to see some really interesting themes. So for instance, a lot of the memes that were made about wheelchair Jimmy um, tend to be quotes, lyrics from J Drake songs that are specifically uh, like humble brags or bragging about his success. Um, so it's interesting that uh, as we do in many of our Drake memes, even outside of the wheelchair Drake, there's a real interest in trying to like knock Drake down a peg to try and show him as uh, not serious, not successful, uh, not masculine, that he, doesn't, he fails the challenge of masculinity, um, specifically the challenge of a, a black rapper masculinity, um, an American masculinity as well. Um, specifically. But I think it's interesting to me that we are drawn then to this idea of using ideas of impairment as a means to delegitimize and to mock or satirize what is essentially a moment of him bragging about his ability, bragging about his powers as a rapper, his powers as like a business person, even his powers as a lover, um, as someone, a seductor, uh, as let's say seductress. Um, which, um, but well, maybe we'll let Drake decide which he is. If he's an S or an R. Um, but um, so that's one of the pieces. The other thing is that a lot of the lyrics are really tied and manipulated to talk about bodily loss. So it's a lot about not being able to walk, legs, legs not working. So there's, for instance, someone's taken the uh, pretty notorious. A quote from from Jay Z. I got 99 problems, um, and they've changed it. I've got 99 problems, but my legs are two. Um, and so there's this real focus, this real energy that's poured into the legs specifically. Um, which the irony, of course, is that in wheelchair Jimmy's case, as a character, the disablement is actually a spinal cord injury. Um, it's the spine that's broken, technically, not the legs, um, but semantics. Um, but I think this actually starts to tell us some things, right, about, about the ways in which we imagine impairment, about the ways in which we see the wheelchair as emblematic of the broken legs, legs that do not work, um, that that is the root of disability, uh, not just an embodied, uh, not just an embodied experience, but uh, really tied to loss and brokenness. Um, and I think that this actually connects really nicely 
with uh, a French psychoanalyst uh, named Julia Kristeva, um, who I have a lot of time for. Um, and she writes about what she calls uh, the narcissistic identity wound of disability. And she essentially says that in confronting the disabled subject, those who don't perceive themselves to be disabled uh, are see disability as an assault or an attack on their own sense of narcissistic self, um, their own sense of bodily completeness, their own sense of uh, bodily supremacy, of ability, uh, that it awakens this sort of deep anxiety within those who don't see themselves as disabled. And the response to that is disavowal, um, that the instinct is to identify the ways in which you and them are different, to draw hard lines between your subjectivity and they the other. Um, and in some ways, it, it connects in with our concept of the abject, um, which are these things that kind of lay at the borderlands of, of us and other, um, subject and object, um, somewhere between life and death, human and not human, where she believes that for those who see themselves as non-disabled, um, they then project a lot of these internal anxieties upon the disabled body. And I think that if we look at the wheelchair Jimmy meme and the ways in which people use this to tell stories, the ways that they use it to talk about Drake, to create a concept of Drake through visual iconography and the merging of uh, cleverly adapted or ironic or satirical song lyrics, um, we are not just giving us given a story of who Drake is, but we're given a story that is deeply imbued with concepts of disablement that both naturalize our understanding of who the disabled are, namely physically disabled people using wheelchairs, and that this loss therefore limits an individual, not just their ability to walk, but their ability to be rich, powerful, successful, sexual, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I think it's further complicated because Drake is a black man or a mixed race man. Right? And what that says about, uh, you know, who is creating these, uh, these, you know, these images and what words are associated with it and using his own lyrics kind of, uh, you know, just switched up a little bit in order to get the message across. I wonder if um, you know of any disabled people who've also taken the images but have done something different with it. You know, um, that is a really interesting question, which as of right now, for this memetic cluster itself, um, I have not been able to track down because uh, it's old. And so I'm digging through a lot of like old dead lengths, a lot of internet archive. Um, and in, you know, in, in 2012, uh, this is such a weird thing to say, and you know, words I never thought I would say. Uh, back in 2012, uh, we weren't actually very good at citing um, creators of memes. Right. Uh, and now in 2020, we actually are. Like, it's a lot easier now to backtrack where things come from um, because there are people like me who are interested in, in these things. Um, and so it's actually becoming a lot easier. This meme is a little bit old. Uh, it's a little harder to do that work. Having said that, um, the broader question, I think, then becomes, 
what's the difference between the ways in which mimetic ephemera is used by disabled people to tell their story versus um, the ways that non-disabled people are using it as either a, a platform to make jokes, a platform to share emotion. Um, in my, I'm going to say very limited experience, um, even though I spend most of my life in social worlds online, um, because I'm a nerd. Um, but in my experience, a lot of disabled people use memes as vehicles for radical embodiments, for radical statements on the world, around justice, around themselves. Um, it shows really the ways in which memetic content has a real multiplicity to them, um, that the vehicles or the pathways in which ideologies can be shared uh, and spread virally um, from in-groups to out-groups. Um, and so while the vehicle may be the same, uh, the content becomes radically different, which should be of no surprise to us. Um, the question though is, who is more successful? Which, which story gets told more often? And when we look at content that goes viral online when it comes to disability, uh, virality is tethered deeply to um, questions of injustice, uh, questions of loss, um, and questions of inspiration um, tend to be that which, which motivates the share, uh, so to speak. So interesting. I'm so glad you're doing this work. I mean, it feels uh, it feels very of the moment, but it's still very much um, tied to kind of the history of the discipline um, and tied to, you know, this, I think what you said before, it's like these are different ways of telling stories and, and with them being shared more widely and faster than ever before, um, critical analysis of them is still very much essential, even though we can probably read them, swipe past them, and never see them again, right? But doesn't mean they're, they don't live on in our memories, it doesn't mean they don't live on or impact the people who are reading them or viewing them. And of course, some people are creating them, right? So it's like, what is the intention behind that? It's so fantastic. Absolutely. And I think I think the challenge of memes is that I would argue, leading up until the early 2000s, I think many people, many scholars that were working in the world of disability studies and many activists in the world of disability studies were looking at media and saying, well, the solution here is policy, that we need to like get into Hollywood and get them to start hiring disabled actors and writers and directors. We need to get into TV studios and we need to pitch stories about disability. And I think many of those efforts were largely successful, sometimes either directly successful, um, something like I'm thinking um, ABC Speechless, uh, for instance, uh, which would be, I would say, a great example of, of activism pushing through policy and bureaucracy in order to get alternate views and alternate opinions on the quote unquote airwaves um, to sort of unintentional things like Peter Dinklage, Game of Thrones, uh, for instance. Peter Dinklage's career in general, uh, you could argue uh, in some ways where it's like the groundwork was laid for someone like Peter Dinklage to kind of burst through the membrane um, and, and become a thing, uh, which is great. Internet memes are way harder to manage um, there is no central agency 
for us to go to and say, hey, the way that you're telling stories about us is not just rooted in this hyper real imagination of disablement, this sort of layered representation of what it's like to be disabled, but also you're perpetually perpetualizing and naturalizing uh, this fiction um, by doing so. And you should probably do better. And also you have a financial reason to want to do better. Um, with the world of internet memes, there is no central body. There is no, um, there are not the same levers um, that can be uh, that can be pulled in order to try and move things forward in a fairly quick way. Uh, in that way, I think we need to be thinking about digital culture, digital ephemera now and working on it now. How is it growing? How does it spread? What is animating these discourses? Because that is the tool we're going to need when it comes time to start to confront it head on. Um, because many of the efforts so far to confront ableism in online community, online culture, digital culture in particular, uh, memes, for instance, have been horrendous failures. Um, and so, for instance, uh, there was an old internet meme of a young girl, a photo was taken from Facebook of a young woman uh, who has Down syndrome. Uh, and it was put on a pinwheel background uh, and it was just sort of making fun of people with Down syndrome, essentially. Um, 10 years later, when the child is now a teenager, uh, her and her mom start a campaign to try and eliminate that meme from the internet. Wow. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, the Streisand fact happens, and now there are two memes about this woman. There's the meme of her as a child in a pinstripe, and now there are memes based on her as a teenager that have, that's been sort of blended and like bound up with um, uh, internet content around feminism, um, hating feminists, um, wow. the aggrieved feminist sort of thing. And so it's like in trying to fight it, there's just been like this reopening of the womb and the perpetuation of the original idea. Uh, as I said, this is the Streisand effect par excellence. Mm -hmm. And so we're not gonna overcome this by saying no. We're not gonna overcome this by saying don't. Um, you know, to take a phrase from Kale Lassen, um, my second reference to Adbusters in this podcast now, which is weird. Um, Kale Lassen said that, uh, you know, Adbusters' idea was about media jinjitsu, that the way to fight ideology is to capture the energy of the ideology that's coming at you, pivot it, and send it back in the other direction. And so for him, it was about parody of advertisements to try and drain that mythical status of ads. Um, I think we need to start to consider the ways in which we can do a similar mimetic jinjitsu to try and capture that, that real visceral energy and emotion and like dare I say passion um, that's driving a lot of this mimetic content and start to help it to start to channel it into other places. And for that, I think, we need to demystify and unmask the simulacra, um, that these aren't true. They are merely copies of copies of copies. Wonderful. So let's jump right into segment two, what I like to call the middle or the liminal. Uh, and I guess I want to know who's your academic crush? Who can you not stop reading or recommending? Oh, that is like the meanest question I think I've ever received. That is like cruel. That's a cruel question. Who 
Oh man. Who is my academic crush? Oh man. Um I've already shouted out Kristeva. I've already shouted out Botriart. Um <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go way, way back. Let's go, let's go way back. This isn't even disability studies. Um but um I'm gonna go way, way back. Let's let's do a shout out to Althazar. Louis Althazar, my boy. <laughs> you know it. Um I, I think Althazar is is a really interesting character um as one of those sort of Marxist writers from the you know a long time ago now. <laughs> well, especially long ago in COVID era, um like two, three centuries ago, uh, by our current time system. Uh but Althazar um, there's something really charming about the ways that Althusser writes. I'm really drawn still to this day around uh, the way he writes about interpolation uh, and ideology as it operates in society. Um, obviously, he was very much a structuralist, uh, writing kind of right out of that um, that sort of Marxist tradition. Um, but uh, I think I think Althusser deserves a little more love in disability studies. Um, temporary like disability studies scholar that you besides yourself maybe that uses Althusser that you think is like worthy. No, I think that's my I think that's my problem. Okay. I, I'm putting I'm putting everyone on blast. <laughs> <laughs> putting everyone on blast. I think because I think that there's so there's so many things that where we talk about like passing, for instance, and we talk about uh, some of the and I'm like, oh man, like this is interpolation, like. This is the ideology of normalcy hailing us um, and being like, hey, are you normal? Yeah, you are normal, aren't you? Uh, this is total interpolation uh, in some ways and, and, and subjugation as, as a result. Um, and so, I'm definitely going to have to look into it then. So. It's a deep cut. And it's also something you can find for free on internet because uh, the Marxists are uh, great at getting their stuff online for free. Uh, so uh, a simple search will get you access. Um, yeah, but it's a weird one, I suppose. I apologize. <laughs> it is. It is the oldest reference or the oldest academic crush we've had so far. So. Really, I should have really. Well, you know that Nietzsche guy has some <laughs> some good ideas. I think he might catch on. And some really bad ideas. <laughs> mostly, mostly bad ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. What what advice do you have for young academics or or even students who, uh, um, yeah, who are kind of in the game now? Yeah. So this is um, probably a little bit counterintuitive, given that I teach in a disability studies program. Um, and um, sorry uh, to anyone that's listening that runs graduate programs in disability studies. Um, so once you've gotten your undergraduate in disability studies at Coons, um, I would recommend that uh, that I would love to see young academics taking disability studies and just battering down the doors of other disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to see disability studies continue to be seated in other disciplines, in other worlds. I want to see disability studies blowing up the world of psychology. I want to see disability studies in the world of geography. I want to see disability studies in history. I want to see it, uh, it's very much already in English. Um, I want to see it in computer science. I want to see it in engineering. Um, so I think my, this isn't an advice, it's it's a plea perhaps, 
um, that once you are, are really comfortable in the world of disability studies, take that tool and um, and literally, you know, like those old days in Berkeley, um, go and start chiseling out the curb cuts uh, into these other faculties, uh, into these other disciplines. Um, I think that's better for the world in a lot of ways. And I think that you will be surprised at how open and accepting and interested other disciplines are. Because I think that we have, I think, crested that debate where I think a lot of programs are now realizing, wow, yeah, it's been like four or 500 years of this discipline and we've never talked about disabled people. Maybe it's time. Um, I think that we're, we're, we're getting past that now. So I think that's my advice is get out there, get interdisciplinary. Um, it, it will, if nothing else, um, give you something else to think about, I think. Um, and um, let the disability studies get your heart and blood flowing uh, and then use the other discipline to uh, tear down the world. I mean, I think that's fantastic advice. I mean, I think, uh, you know, being being a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary, someone who studies multiple disciplines is fantastic. Uh, uh, I do think they will be open to doing disability studies. I just don't know how accessible they'll be. <laughs> so that is a loaded question. That's it. I think I think we, you know there are a lot of people out there who don't have uh, the spoons to go out there and, and to fight the fights. But if you are a person who does, exactly. um, you know, blaze that trail. Yeah, perfect. All right, segment three, I call this outside the research, the work, the project, the art. Um, who is the most famous person you've met? And what was that experience like? Oh, Lord. Okay, so do you want like a good answer or do you want a hilarious answer? Uh, I'm, I think we need to laugh. Let's go with hilarious. Okay, so my, my, so back in 1992. Oh, wow, deep cut. Um, another deep cut. This, another deep cut, yep. Uh, so back in 1992, I was a young lad, um, and I was a young lad who found himself at a Toronto Maple Leafs game at the gardens. And I was a young lad who, um, you know, had a wheelchair, wanted to meet some peeps, uh, and managed uh, to get himself into the Toronto Police dressing room after the game, oh, wow. uh, in which I got to meet all of my idols uh, in various states of undress. Um, I don't know, for those of you who are not uh, into like sports culture, um, or, or whatever. Um, yeah, locker rooms, uh, my, I understand now, are very much like a clothing optional situation, clothing frowned upon, perhaps even situation. Um, so I, I got a real intimate education on, you know, Doug Gilmore, Wendell Clark, uh, a lot of these like leaf greats uh, as a young boy. Um, and so uh, not only did I get to meet um, a lot of Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, I also uh, got to meet them naked, uh, which is um, something else entirely. Um, something else, yes. Yeah, something else entirely. Uh, yeah, and I'm still a Leaf fan. Uh, and I was horrified 
that Doug Gilmore didn't have uh, cow legs um, because at the time he was doing these commercials for the Milk Canada people. Um, oh. And so he had those commercials where his legs were painted like cow, like a cow's legs. Uh, and I did not know that that was paint, I guess, as a child. And I was like, oh, because I thought he was maybe really good at hockey because he was like part cow, because cows are strong, right? So I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, so like, I my dreams, I guess, were crushed. I realized that Doug Moore was not some sort of cow centaur, um, but just a naked man who I met. That is funny. Um, <laughs> and also poor, like, 10-year-old you, like, so yeah. A very odd situation, right? Like, yeah. it's like the, the 90s were a different time, right? Really? They were like, oh, you're a young child? Yeah, come on in. It's all good. We're all friends here. It's fine. Uh, okay. It's fine. Uh, but, uh, yeah. What uh, obscure fact do you carry around and pull out in um, uncomfortable silences? <clears throat> oh, obscure fact. Oh, man. That is also a really hard question to answer. Obscure fact. Um, hmm. Do I know any obscure fact? Every fact I know, I feel, is not obscure. <laughs> um, I guess actually, I guess, okay. So as I said, I, I'm a real big fan of Drake. Um, uh, a fan is a not the right word, I guess. Uh, obsession perhaps, is a better word. Uh, there's love and hate, I think, at the same time. Um, so uh, an obscure thing about Drake uh, that is really interesting uh, is that, did you know that, so not only does Drake uh, have a house beside Kanye's, mm -hmm. he bought a house beside Kanye's house in Hollywood, uh, or LA, wherever they're, Malibu, I don't know, who cares, um, <laughs> wherever the rich people are. Um, so he's there. He, in his backyard, has like a fully functional basketball court, um, which has cameras. Um, and Kanye and Drake have like games they play against each other on this court. Um, and Drake apparently records these games and then, <laughs> and then he makes supercuts, apparently, of like his best shots. Um, and so uh, there's this amazing, amazing YouTube video. Uh, so Ninja from Die Antwerp. Uh, I think I'm saying that right, Die Antwerp. Um, if you look up, if you go to YouTube, there's a great video. If you look up Ninja, uh, banana pudding, um, and it's all about the day that Ninja spent with Kanye, and then they go and play basketball against Drake. Um, and it is a whole thing. And in, in, in what I often say to myself, Whenever I learn something about Drake, Drake having a highlight reel of his best shots that he made in his backyard is the most Drake thing that I've ever heard. Absolutely. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And that is an incredibly obscure fact. I thought you were going to tell us something about his new house in Post Road or Bridal Path or that. I mean, it's, oh, no. it's all deep cuts here. We're nostalgic. This is your nostalgia episode. Very deep cuts here. Okay. Um, what are you reading now? What's on your bedside table? <laughs> uh, so this is, uh, again, more evidence of how bad I am as a professor. Um, so I'm uh, 
I, I got one of my students to read Anti-Oedipus uh, by Deleuze and uh, So I am rereading uh, Anti-Oedipus right now uh, and really enjoying it way more than I did when I had to read it for comprehensive exams. Um, so I've been reading that and that's been good. Uh, and I am also, I'm low-key a really big fan of, um, of John Scalzi, uh, who's a science fiction writer. Um, and so in about a week and a half, uh, I will be reading his new book, uh, Last Emperor, uh, which is the third, uh, novel in his, uh, Collapsing Empire trilogy. Um, and actually shout out to John Scalzi. If you want to read a book that sounds like a DS book that was not written by someone in DS, check out John Scalzi's book, Walk In. Um, it is a sci-fi noir mystery and it is like I, I use it in one of my classes um because it is like disability studies come alive um and as far as i know john scalzi has no background in disability studies which is pretty amazing right. so shout out to scalzi and elizabeth Curry. yeah definitely uh do you have a hobby uh, or something that you like to do that brings you joy um and how did you get started yeah, well, so the, those are two interesting questions. Uh, <laughs> my original answer, and then you're like, brings you joy. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I have Does to it bring that. you joy? I had to add that because uh, Jenna Reed um, politicized the word hobby for us at some point during this podcast. And so um, I've been told to both <laughs> include hobby, but also uh you know some people don't have hobbies and also maker cultures you know when people are doing actual work are turned into hobbies so that's why yeah, totally uh, yeah so my my hobby which i also i guess have a love-hate relationship with uh i'm i'm huge i love video games mm -hmm. um, i'm really deep into video games love it um very sad during the year and i can't really play video games because i'm marking and doing all the academic work um but there's just something beautiful about loading up NHL and just knowing that you just eviscerated like a 12 year old. Um, like there's just no better feeling and there's no better reality check than when the 12 year old completely humiliates you, um, just destroys you. And you're like, right, I am not a God among men. I am but a mortal uh, and that's okay. Um, uh, but it is, I would say, a love me. Uh, a love-hate relationship, but I think video games are, are a great outlet. And uh, I started video gaming when I was really young, deep uh, cut again, I suppose, when I was um, about six years old, I'd had a surgery, couldn't go out and play. Uh, and so my parents allowed me to get my first Nintendo um, and to sort of pass the time as I was recovering. And, uh, and it really stuck. Um, I loved the fact that if I went out and played baseball or hockey, with the friends on on my street where I grew up, um, I wasn't really playing with them. The rules had to be changed, and the adaptation just wasn't the same. And if I scored, it really didn't count because it was kind of they allowed it to happen. But there wasn't that competitiveness. But in the video game world, in the digital sphere, I was able to compete on a level uh, that was no different than anyone else. Yeah. Um, there was nothing more satisfying than when I started playing competitively on uh, a video game called Counter Strike. Uh, many years ago um and the first time that i was like viciously horrendously sexistly uh trash talked 
um, by an opposing player. And I was like, your acceptance means so much to me. Thank you, sir. Also, what you just said was like vile, but I appreciate that you feel that I was worthy of such an atrocious, such awful thing to say to another person. I was so thankful. It was amazing. Um, I was like, no, please tell me more what you will do to my mother. I would love to know. Um, thank you, sir. Uh, but no, I never had that before. Like, no one's going to trash talk the kid in the wheelchair. Like, that's wild. Um, and so there was a really interesting kind of acceptance there uh, that uh, that I enjoyed. And then it, it, that that got old real quick. Um, don't don't be a weird sexist racist on the internet, guys. Just chill with that. Just play the game. Shake hands after. It's all good. Win or lose. Have fun. That's the name of the game. Um, I want to know how you think disability can save the world. Yeah, absolutely. And this act like legitimately from like the deepest part of my soul uh, is something that I do legitimately believe. Um, I think that, uh, like a lot of disability studies scholars have said, I think that disability actually is an important key that is going to unlock uh, the next, I don't want to say the next phase of humanity, the next way of being, but I think that disability opens up and, and reveals the cracks of neoliberal capitalist um, schemes in ways that I don't think other theory has been quite as able to articulate and to reveal just the complete bankruptcy of some of these political and economic philosophies. Um, I think that disability reveals to us that we didn't eat eugenics back in the end of World War II, uh, that we vilified the word we did not eliminate the ideology that we do still have this dark desire for a perfected human body and we are okay with getting rid of those who don't align with that principle i think disability then asks us to question so what is that other side if if we're not going to be a eugenic society if we're not going to be a society that strives to build a monolithic perfected normal human then what do we want to be and i think that where the eugenic path takes us not just down a dark road but down a very monolithic road uh, a very sort of centered singular road that disability opens us up to this like deep root system that weaves out into the sand that actually grounds us in a way to survive the you know heavy winds and the cold winters. Uh, I think that by thinking about diverse ability, diverse function, diverse configurations of the human, as seen not just through the disabled body, quote unquote, as defined by medicine, but as seen by the human body as an imperfect body, as a multiple, fractured, weird, vulnerable, fragile body, that suddenly the possibilities of the future become so much more exciting and so much more interesting to say, who cares about building a world for one kind of person? Think about the beautiful world of many and how many people can come up with many more ideas, with many more perspectives, with many more pathways forward. 
that diversity genuinely is um, the spice of life in some ways. But diversity also gives us the answers on how to answer questions that perhaps we can't answer right now. I would be horrified if we lived in a world that only operated under one economic philosophy as we enter into the COVID crisis. That different ways of tackling this problem gets us a lot closer to exiting this crisis, I would say, not just in terms of medical research, but in terms of how can we structure our society to be safer? How can we structure our work world to be more accommodating? How can we structure our lives to be more healthy? And what does health mean? What does health look like? Um, I think what's amazing right now in, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic is the ways in which people are now redefining what healthy is, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to snack because I'm just trying to survive this. I don't need to stick to my rigid sort of diet structure that has been determined as getting me the right body for swimsuit season. Um, we start to remember that there are things that are maybe more important in our lives than going to the job, getting the money, eating the right food, doing the right exercise, building the right body, building the right life. Um, because that maybe was also simulacra all along, perhaps. Just a copy of a copy, a representation passed off as natural. And I think disability is the key to opening up that conversation. I think that uh, loss and difference seen through the lens of disability um, opens up this type of conversation, which before this didn't happen because I think we all thought everything was great. I'm like, oh, society's perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm a normate. Things are great. And that's not so anymore. Uh, to hear you talk about disability, you know, in absolute relationship with the future, right? And what's possible in the future is to me like uh, really compelling. It's really why I think um, I wanted to start the podcast in the beginning, right? To hear what people had to say. Um, uh, and yeah, to hear you articulate this idea that disability can show us a new path forward. Um, and also to really reveal the current path we're on, right? In terms of eugenics is I think a really powerful statement. Thank you for sharing that. No, absolutely. I'm excited. Like, I know a lot of people are really worried. I'm like, obviously, it's going to be bad when I die from COVID, but provided I don't. Um, I, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the future. I don't see how the world can go back to how it was yeah. before this. Um, I think that would be quite difficult. And, and, and beyond that, I think we disabled people are becoming more powerful more articulate, more connected, more out of the house than ever before, which to me, um, you know, I love that uh, there's that sort of sticker that's going, it's going around a meme in and out of its own right that's like, the future is accessible. Um, and uh, I think it was Robert McGrewer, uh, he did this chapter before, I don't remember. I apologize to whoever I'm about to quote and, uh, and Google it and find out who, that's the mystery of this podcast. Find out who said um, the future will be crit. I'm 90% sure it was Robert Robert McGrewer who said uh, the, the future will be crit. Uh, and to me, I'm like, yeah, dude, yeah, let's do it. 
let's all just get disabled and get weird with it. It'll be awesome. And there's no way, better way to end than that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I'm sorry to everyone who uh, listened to this. No. <laughs> Thanks again to Jeff for coming on the show. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitiessavestheworld at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, you can check out my website, fadyshenuda.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, and now edited by Yasmina Garcia. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Disability Saves the World. <laughs>